welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 7, Sophocles, That Charming Man. Having spent the last three episodes in the company of Aeschylus, the first of the three great Greek tragedians, it's time to move on to Sophocles. So our focus shifts from the Oresteia and Argos to the no less bloody and troubled ruling family of Thebes, among others. We've seen how a big part of Aeschylus's life was spent fighting for Athens and the Greek alliance in the Persian Wars, something that could unequivocally be looked back on by the demos of Athens with pride and glory. For Sophocles, whose life almost spanned the 5th century BCE, things were a little bit different. Like Aeschylus, he was part of the Athenian Golden Age, but it was also a period of spasmodic civil war that was close to conclusion by the time he died. But... Let's start at the beginning. Sophocles was contemporary with both Aeschylus, who was older, and Euripides, who was younger. Very little is known about his life story, and every source that I've reviewed say exactly the same things. What we know of his life comes to us through a 13th century manuscript referring back to earlier sources, so although the distance of time makes the source less than completely reliable, here's what has been reported. He was born into a well-to-do family in 497 BCE. That's just a few years before the Battle of Marathon. His father, Sophilus, was a maker of armour, so a skilled craftsman with a service that, given the constant fighting with the Persians and other city-states, must have been in high demand. The family lived at Colonus, just outside the city of Athens, and as Sophocles grew up, he was said to be a fine young man, both in temperament and physically. In fact, he is made to sound pretty close to the Greek ideal of perfection. So much so that he was selected to lead the choral chant as a 17-year-old that celebrated the victory over the Persians at Salamis in 480 BCE. We've already heard, as part of Aeschylus' life story, what an important victory that was, effectively sealing the end of the Persian invasion of Europe. So it was a very big, very important city celebration, and the young Sophocles played a central part in it. It's noted that he was an actor as a young man, but retired early as his rather high-pitched voice led to poor vocal projection. He took to playwriting, but his skills as a wrestler, a juggler, a musician and a poet are also noted. He also appears to have held some priestly rank and have been consulted on a wide range of matters. Otherwise, there is no detail about his early life, but he seems to have moved in the right circles and become actively involved in the governance of the city. In 442 BCE, in his mid-fifties, he's recorded as being a city treasurer with the responsibility to collect the tribute from the Dalian League. This was an association of city-states under Athenian leadership that had been set up in 478 BCE to help with protection against the Persian threat. An annual tribute was paid by each state to Athens, who in turn provided commanders for the military forces and controlled the budget used to build the ships that were the key to Athenian military power. The arrangements continued after the expulsion of the Persians, and the post-war bloom in Athenian wealth, art, philosophy and politics got underway. Two years later, he was elected as Strategori, one of ten posts in executive control of the military. In this role, he was under the city Tyrannos Pericles, who he seems to have been on good terms with. His tenure as a military leader was reportedly not considered his best achievement, but any failures there did not put him seriously out of favour. 
At this point, I have to interrupt the story of Sophocles to say something about Pericles. He was an incredibly important figure in Athens in the period between the Persian and Peloponnesian Wars, so it was remiss of me not to mention him before in the context of Aeschylus, but I'll rectify that now. Pericles was born in 495 BCE into a family heavily involved in Athenian politics. He was well-educated and inclined towards the arts and philosophy, but joined the military and commanded the Athenian contingent at the Battle of Mycelae as a young man, barely out of his teens. In 472 BCE, he was the producer of the Persians by Aeschylus, suggesting he already had considerable wealth to command. Plutarch said he stood first among Athenians for 40 years, so being well established at a very young age is completely plausible. It is said he always kept himself private and a model of good and restrained behaviour. In 461 BCE, the democratic faction that Pericles was a leading member of began to work on taking control of the ruling city council. The leaders of the council were successfully ousted, and at the same time, Pericles took control of the democratic faction. As de facto city leader and then acknowledged Tyrannos, he promoted many populist policies, including one that decreed that the state would pick up the cost of allowing the poor into the theatre for free. There were many other reforms that, generally speaking, increased the level of democracy. Pericles believed that the demos were the greatest asset to Athens, and he seems to have had a genuine wish to raise them up as much as possible. But the policies were also unashamedly populist, and much as the radical democracy benefited the people, it ultimately harmed the state, which quickly descended into political infighting and turmoil under the strains of war and once Pericles had died, and his personal charisma was no longer holding things together. The rise in Athenian power after the expulsion of the Persians was swift and dramatic. Through the Dalian League of subject states, Athens headed an Athenian empire in all but name. This was the Athenian Golden Age. The wealth collected from the Dalian League and the silver mines allowed the city to build and maintain a fleet of ships that was unsurpassed at the time. They commanded the sea and therefore trade. It was only on land outside of their own lands, and those of the affiliated states, that they were in any way matched. That matching came from the city-state of Sparta, which led a league made up of states in the Peloponnese. The growth of Athenian power and influence in this period resulted in tensions with the Spartan League that eventually led to war. We look back on this now as the Peloponnesian War, but it was far less coherent than that name suggests. The intricacies of the build-up to the war and the story of its course were well documented by Thucydides in eight volumes, and this and subsequent scholarship could be the subject of an, a podcast series in its own right. I'll give just a brief summary here that won't do the subject justice, but the war has a profound effect on Athenian society of the time, so some understanding of it is essential to the story of Greek theatre. These are the bare bones. The first part of the war, starting in 460 BCE, saw the Dalian League battle with the allies of Sparta. The Athenians were broadly successful in their aims, but had also taken on a fight with the Persians in Egypt, and a bad defeat there forced them into a truce with Sparta that lasted five years. The conflict started up again in 448 BCE, and was then compounded by a revolt in the central Athenian-affiliated state of Boeotia. 
Wary of dealing with both conflicts, the Athenians came to an agreement with Sparta, where both sides retained their lands and influence within their respective leagues. Functionally, there was an Athenian Empire and a Spartan Empire. In broad military terms, Athens still dominated the sea and Sparta the land. A period of peace was maintained until 432 BCE. During that period, there was much politicking between aligned and non-aligned states, until Athenian naval assistance supporting Corinth resulted in the Spartans calling the members of the two leagues into a conference. They debated and the Athenians requested arbitration, as defined by the latest peace treaty, but the majority of the Spartan supporting delegates voted that Athens had broken the terms of the treaty and, in effect, declared war. Hostilities resumed almost immediately. Spartan forces invaded Attica, but Athens could not be broken thanks to its access to the sea and extensive city walls. Just prior to this point, Pericles had had the city walls repaired and extended as a key part of his defensive strategy. Safe behind these walls, the city used its dominance at sea to attack rather than attempting to fight on land, but it was an outbreak of disease in 430 BCE that changed the course of this part of the war. Until quite recently, it was assumed that this was an outbreak of plague. But there has been new studies of bodies from grave pits in Athens excavated in the 1990s and now dated to this period using DNA analysis from teeth. This study suggests that it was typhoid fever that killed upwards of 30,000 people in the city, including Pericles and his sons, which is a recorded event in 429 BCE. The death toll was somewhere well over a third and maybe as much as two-thirds of the city population. The fear of the infection was so bad that the Spartan army refused to fight, fearing any contact with the city. After a short hiatus, the Athenians took a more aggressive strategy under new leadership and, by using naval raiding techniques, were able to inflict defeats on specific Spartan outposts until they captured 300 Spartan hoplites at the Battle of Specteria in 425 BCE. The Spartans then managed to capture the main Athenians' silver mines in Thrace, which were still the source of much of the city's wealth. A truce was agreed and the hostages exchanged for the captured silver mine towns. This peace officially lasted six years, but there was almost constant skirmishing by allies of Sparta until a series of defeats prompted the Athenian allies to take the city of Tegera near Sparta. The Battle of Mantinea in 421 BCE was the largest battle fought on the Greek mainland during the war. Sparta was on the verge of defeat when elite forces managed to turn the battle and routed their enemies. The victory re-established Spartan control in the Peloponnese. In 415 BCE, the Athenians were called by an allied state in Sicily to come to their aid as they were under attack by Spartan allies on the island. The Athenians saw the chance to take Sicily, a key strategic position in the Mediterranean as well as being wealthy and a supplier of grain, and sent a force of over 100 ships and 5,000 hoplites to the island. They only had limited success and were unable to take Syracuse before winter set in. As the Athenians waited it out, Sparta sent a force to the island and gathered recruits from the towns in their control. Come springtime, the forces engaged and the Athenians were defeated. Reinforcements were requested and another fleet sent, but they too were soundly defeated. Both fleets were destroyed. Any survivors were sold into slavery.
Emboldened by the victory in Sicily, the Spartans took the fight to Athens. They occupied the land around Athens, forcing all supplies to the city to come by sea. They also retook the silver mines. The dual financial constraints forced Athens to extract more tribute from their allies, straining relations with them. The Athenian Empire was on its knees and the inevitable revolt of some of the allied states began soon after the defeat in Sicily. Athens only survived because Sparta was slow to gather in these new allies and failed to offer them the protection they expected, so some returned to the Athenian fold. During this period, Sophocles returns to the story. In 413 BCE, aged about 83, he acts as a probolus, again one of ten men who were given special powers to oversee Athens' financial recovery after the defeat in Sicily and its aftermath. The Athenians had prudently kept back a hundred ships. These were now released and harboured at the island of Samos. Shortly after, there was a revolt in Athens and an oligarchy took control, but the fleet refused to recognise them and continued to engage the Spartans. This semi-independent fleet won a series of battles for Athens through to 406 BCE and democracy was restored in Athens after only two years of oligarchic rule. Sophocles died in 406 BCE, age 90, but not before he had led the public mourning for the death of Euripides. His long life spanned the period from the end of the Persian Wars through to almost the end of the Peloponnesian Wars. The first a great victory, the second a protracted bloodbath that cost Athens dear. When he died, it might have seemed possible that Athens would prevail. Democracy had survived, and the naval war had gone well in the last few years. Times must have been very hard for Athenians, but Sophocles might have died with optimistic thoughts for the future. However, that was not how it played out for Athens. Seeing a resurgent Athens, Darius II in Persia gave Sparta support and they engaged the Athenian fleet at Arganusi. The Athenians caused more damage than they took, but bad weather prevented a solid conclusion to the battle. In what seems now like extraordinary circumstances, the top naval commanders were put on trial in Athens and executed. The Spartan fleet sailed to the Dardanelles, threatening to cut off the grain supply to Athens, so the Athenian fleet had to follow, and were soundly defeated at Aegospotomy in 405 BCE. It was the last battle of the war. So resounding was the defeat that it is said only 12 Athenian ships survived. The once mighty fleet that was the basis of Athenian military power was all but completely destroyed. The threat of starvation prompted the surrender in 404 BCE, with allied states following soon after. Some called for the complete destruction of Athens, but the Spartan leadership elected to save the emasculated city, a city now without walls or fleet, explicitly recognising its past achievements and the assistance it had given Sparta in earlier times of need. There were no good estimates of the death tolls in the Peloponnesian War. Given the numerous individual land and sea battles, the inevitable resulting atrocities, food shortages and disease, over such an extended period of on and off civil war, the death toll must have been in the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. The war, its hardships and the resulting internal Athenian politics had significant effects on the plays presented during and after the war. We'll cover some of that in more detail in future episodes, but for now, we can perhaps just have some sense of relief that Sophocles didn't live to see the final end for Athens. 
the capitulation of the city would surely have broken his heart. His death, like that of Aeschylus, immediately attracted stories. He either died through the efforts of reciting a particularly long speech from Antigone in one breath, or from choking on some grapes, or from the joy of winning the Dionysia again. Frankly, natural causes through old age and the stresses and strains of the war years would seem the most likely reason. So, a man of a well-to-do family who moved through his life in some very important roles concerned with the city, its protection, its democracy and its very survival. It's reported that he was charming and had graceful manners and that he was on good terms with the leading families of the time, which, no doubt, helps explain his success in civic life. He seems to have been well-respected and led something of a charmed life through the rough and tumble of Athenian politics with only a couple of exceptions. In some accounts, it's reported that in his old age his sons tried to get him declared unfit in an attempt to get control of his estates and wealth, and he was forced to prove his faculties by reciting a work in progress, Oedipus at Colonus, in court. Needless to say, the attempt by his sons failed. He's said to have fathered many children, both legitimate and illegitimate, but there are also accounts of his liking for young men. Not that same-sex relationships between older and younger men were frowned on in the classical period. In fact, they were common and viewed as something like a mentor-pupil relationship, but they were not expected to be long-lasting. The accounts relating to Sophocles are not told in a sympathetic way, but again, details are missing. Whatever the state of his private and civic lives, what we can say is that he was an enormously successful dramatist with a very long career. With the usual uncertainties over dates, it's possible to say that his first presentation at the Dionysia was in 470 BCE. But with more certainty, his career really kicked off two years later, when he won his first victory at the Dionysia, defeating Aeschylus in the process. We know of 123 plays by Sophocles, meaning he must have competed at least 30 times, as each entry required four plays, the three tragedies and the satire play. As mentioned before, he won 24 times and came second on the other occasions. He's credited with some specific theatrical innovations. He increased the chorus from 12 to 15 persons. I've seen it suggested that this was to do with the pattern of dance performance by the chorus, but again, the exact reasons are uncertain. It's also reported that he introduced some scene painting as a means of establishing the setting. This is disputed and some scholars think that there never was any scene painting, arguing that the text itself provides all the required scene setting. More significantly, he introduced the third actor, a move that was quickly copied by Aeschylus, as we saw in the Oresteia. Aeschylus was at the end of his career by then, some 30 years senior to Sophocles. As we've already heard, he was said to be conservative by nature, so it seems quite a thing for him to take on this innovation so quickly. He must have seen the potential for adding complexity to plot and dramatic conflict, which then leads to a different level of characterisation that has been achieved previously. But for all that, Sophoclean tragedy still relies on strong, broadly drawn characters. Typically, they have a central character flaw, which coupled with the circumstances the poet places them in, leads to the tragedy. That descent is quite linear and direct, but nevertheless coherent so the plays manage to generate a sense of both suspense and anticipation. 
Sophocles sees his characters as suffering from a lack of thoughtfulness before taking action, so they make one wrong judgment too hastily, and this leads them to the tragedy. But he manages to do this without overt criticism. He doesn't preach to his audience in quite the way that Aeschylus does, and this seems to tally with the reports of his charming nature and character. Another big difference between Aeschylus and Sophocles is that a Sophoclean tragedy is not one story told across multiple generations in three parts, but three single complete tragedies presented together. It may have been the desire to tell stories in a more compact form that resulted in the inclusion of the third actor so that the plot could be driven with more pace and without long explanations of the preceding or intervening events. Equally, it may have been that the realisation that including a third actor would allow for this more complex and condensed style that prompted the change. It's a classic chicken-and-egg dilemma. Sophocles is also admired for his use of language, particularly in the way it changes according to the needs of the action and the dramatic feel of the play. The patterns range from the plain and direct to the heightened poetic. That shift at the right moment heightens the dramatic or tragic moment. Because his characters are well drawn, particularly through this use of language, they are more real and sympathetic than those who have gone before them. His drawing of the tragic female characters is particularly strong. Electra, and to a lesser extent Antigone, remains some of the best parts for women in the classical repertoire to this day. Indeed, some commentators regard Sophocles as the best dramatic craftsman that has ever written for the stage due to this combination of poetic language combined with the precise sense of form and structure. But there have been critics of his work too, both contemporary and through the ages. Aristotle is definitely a fan, quoting him frequently in The Poetics and admiring his skills of plot construction and ability to create moments of tension and dramatic irony. But some critics have found the plays hollow at heart. He doesn't tackle any religious questions, his focus being on human action within the rule of the gods, which he accepts without question. Mankind, he seems to say, has a place and cannot move out of it, and nor should he want to. But... Through enduring tragedy, man can be brought to a better understanding of himself and his place in the grand scheme. That does not bring him closer to the gods, but can make him a better person with increased wisdom and better judgment in the future. Once again, we have to lament that we have so little surviving evidence of dramatic output. There are over 120 known titles or fragments of plays and 400 lines of a satire play, but only seven complete. Dating is uncertain for most of these, but the consensus is that they represent his mature writings. The earliest surviving play, although still late, is thought to be Ajax. The play tells of how the warrior Ajax is offended when he isn't considered to be the rightful heir of the armour that belonged to Achilles, which is awarded to Odysseus instead. In his pride, Ajax is incensed at this judgment and threatens to kill all concerned, including the most senior leaders of the army engaged with the assault on Troy. The goddess Athena frustrates his attempts by making him mistake animals for his intended victims and, humiliated, Ajax throws himself onto his sword. Agamemnon and Menelaus decree that the body be left to rot, but Odysseus persuades them to give it a proper burial. Antigone was performed about 442 BCE. We'll look at this play in more detail in the next episode, so very briefly here, 
Antigone is the daughter of Oedipus. Her brother Polynices has been killed attacking the city and she risks death if she buries his corpse. Her actions bring her into conflict with her uncle the king. The play is a tragedy that asks, where should civic rules override natural law? Women of Trachis is stylistically similar to Antigone and probably performed in 450 BCE, so thought to be from about the same time. While Hercules is engaged with one of his many missions, his wife Deonera is concerned with winning back his affections. He recently sent back his new lover to live in the family home, so she believes drastic actions are needed. She uses a love charm on him, but has been tricked, and it is in fact poison. Hercules is in agony, and Deonera kills herself when she hears this. Hercules also dies. Her ignorance and his insensitivity are the cause of the tragedy, a realisation that they both come to only at the moment of death. Well, look at Oedipus Tyrannos, which many people consider to be Sophocles' greatest work, in a later episode. For now, I'll just remind you that it retells part of the well-known Oedipus myth involving doubtful parentage, hot-tempered murder, incest and self-mutilation. It's a play where terrible truths are revealed and an overwhelming sense of inevitability and tragedy are generated through the plot, characterisation and use of language. Philoctetes was performed in 409 BCE, so a late work by anybody's standards. Philoctetes has the misfortune to suffer from an ugly ulcer on his foot as he journeys to Troy with the Greek army. The affliction is so bad that his comrades cannot stand his presence, even though he carries the bow that used to belong to Hercules and abandon him on the arid island of Lemnos. However, the Greeks have since learned that they cannot win the war without him, so they order Odysseus to bring him back to Troy. Odysseus realises that this will be a difficult, if not fatal, task and persuades the son of Achilles to act as his go-between. As expected, Philoctetes will not consider joining the army that abandoned him and the young man is caught between the manipulative Odysseus and the integrity of Philoctetes. Much cajoling will not shift Philoctetes and eventually the two men become friends as Odysseus's duplicity is exposed and refuted. The spirit of Hercules then appears and persuades Philoctetes to return to the army where he will play his part in winning the war and be cured. Electra is stylistically very similar, so thought to also be from the very late period of the Sophocles canon. We are familiar with the story from The Libation Bearers, part two of the Oresteia. However, Sophocles makes Electra the centre of his play, as she becomes involved in her brother's plans to kill his mother and Aegisthus. When Orestes puts about the rumour of his own death, Electra is distraught and tries to get her sister to assist her in murdering their mother, but unsuccessfully. Then, when Orestes in disguise hands Electra what purports to be his own ashes, she is grief-stricken until he reveals his identity. The double murder of Clytemnestra and Aegisthus follows, but is Electra virtuous and triumphant, or a woman hopelessly damaged by her years of resentful hatred? There is much debate over how we can see this complex character. Oedipus at Colonus was produced posthumously in 401 BCE by his grandson. This picks up the Oedipus story many years later with the ex-king in exile. As the third part of the Theban plays, we will look at this in more detail as well. It's a more philosophical piece with little dramatic action, where the ex-king ponders questions of guilt and responsibility. 
As Colonus was the hometown of Sophocles, it seems to hold particular resonance for a playwright who, having reached a great age, even by modern standards, must have been well aware of his own looming mortality. Antigone, Oedipus Tyrannos and Oedipus at Colonus are all concerned with events in Thebes through the reigns of King Oedipus and King Creon. As such, they're often now collected and presented together as the Theban plays, but they were each written some years apart and paired with other lost plays from their respective presentations at the Dionysia. The life of Sophocles all but spanned the 5th century BCE, and although there are big gaps in his life story and theatrical output, we do get a picture of a man who, in civic life, was a respected member of the higher echelons of the ruling class. As such, he would have been involved in the development of Athenian democracy, and that project has a central question that becomes reflected in his plays. Each features a hero who has to face realisation of truth through tragedy. The role of the hero resonated through Greek culture as a strong man who succeeded through force of will and physical strength, but for Sophocles, the role is changed. As duty to the civic life becomes more prominent, the hero has to find compromise with others. However, the influence of the gods and fate is still strong and the human characters who suffer in the tragedy only come to self-realisation at the moment of death. So his plays manage to combine a political message with questions about how man's humanity can be properly respected in the civic circumstances. Remembering that in his time he was a very popular playwright and successful dramatist, it's clearly a question that his contemporary audience liked to consider. Next time, we'll take a deeper dive into Antigone, the first written but last part of the Theban plays. It's a story of how the needs of the state bump up against personal responsibilities, of how civic law can conflict with natural law, but another tale where passions run high as the characters are faced with life and death decisions. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. (laughs) 